0: morning everyone if you have a Bible please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 back in our series in Exodus and we have just finished our study of the law the last time that we were here and we have seen the truth that God's law is holy and righteous and good that God gave us his law to lead us to Christ and it stands as his righteous standard that is binding on all mankind. And I read a good summary this week for us. I've got to give you a refresher of what we have seen of God's law. This is from Puritan Samuel Bolton. That the law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified. And the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified, as those who have been forgiven. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. And so now we come to Israel's response to God's giving of the law. So we're jumping right back in. God has been thundering from this mountain, his own voice delivering to people the Ten Commandments. And now is Israel's response to that delivering of God's Law. So, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. We are in Exodus chapter 20, and we will begin in verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, and the people were afraid and trembled. Let's pray. Father, would you please come and open our eyes to see your holiness and your majesty and to learn what it means to fear you. And God, would you give us the gift of rejoicing in Christ and fearing you by walking in all your ways. Come speak to us now by your spirit. and. Unite your word to our hearts with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The clearest sensation that human beings have when they experience the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. I read that from R.C. Sproul this week in The Holiness of God that the most profound sensation that you have when you experience the presence of the holy God is an overwhelming, an overpowering sense in which you are not him. That's what we see Israel experiencing in our passage. And so we've got some ground to cover we need prayer together because for us as creatures to talk about the God who is holy, it is going to be a complete gift of God if he reveals himself to us in a way that he is worthy of. But that's what he does here. That's the first observation that we see in this text is God's grace in revealing his holiness. God, in revealing his glory to Israel, was testing them, but he was giving the, them the gift of seeing him as he is, and of them seeing themselves as they were in their sinfulness. The text says that the people were terrified at the manifestation of the presence of God at the mountain. Here we have the the thunder and the peals of lightning, and this is described in chapter 19. You may remember from our study of that chapter. This is not two recountings of the same experience, but this has been going on the whole time while God is declaring to people from his voice thundering from heaven, there has been this earthquake with the mountain on fire and the thunder and the lightning in a way that were loud and terrifying and the people can't take it. Even the writer of Hebrews says that Moses said, I tremble with fear before this God who is revealed himself to us. The mountain, the, what God has given to us is the most immovable reality that we have is quaking at the presence of God. So terrifying was the voice of God and his command not to even come close to the mountain lest they die, that the people begged Moses to stand before God as a mediator and they would listen to him deliver the message But they were afraid to continue to hear the voice of the living God lest they die. God was revealing himself to them in his holiness so that they may honor him in their obedience and ultimately so that they might know their need for atonement and for a mediator. Now, the holiness of God is the most emphasized of all of his attributes, and that is because the holiness of God speaks to God's godness. It speaks to his sacredness or his otherness as God, separate and above all that he has made. It speaks to his infinite worth and his beauty and his glory so that you could take any of God's attributes and say that God is holy in his righteousness. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who can compare with him. He's holy in his love. All other love is sourced from him, but there is no love that can be compared to his. He's holy in it. He is other and transcendent and beyond what we could fathom in our creatureliness. God is so holy above his creation that sinless beings around his throne are covering their eyes so as not to look upon him while crying out before him holy 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 is the lord god the almighty the whole earth is full of his glory these are sinless angels angels that if they were to show up here right now you would bow down before them and you would worship them And they would have to say, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of Jesus. And they are shielding their eyes before the God who is holy and crying out about his otherness, his sacredness, his worth. When God, who is holy, appears to his creation, the repeated pattern in Scripture is that the people are terrified or they fall on their face as though dead, And then God will often reassure them or forgive or atone or revive. And then he teaches them or he sends them out for the mission that he's called them to. If if you're doing our reading plan, we read this in Ezekiel just this week, that Ezekiel twice falls on his face as though dead before the glory of the Lord. And just in the first three chapters. And the Spirit of God must enter him to set him on his feet. Isaiah, who is regarded as the most righteous man in his generation, in Israel, has a vision of the throne room of God where these angels are crying out about God's holiness. And he says, I am undone by the sight of a God in his holiness. Isaiah, who is far more righteous than we could dream of outside of Christ, and he's saying, I am a profane man. I am undone. Before this holy God. Daniel, the exact same. God, God speaks about Daniel in this way Even if Noah and Daniel and Job were here, I would not spare this city. As if Daniel was one of the examples of the most righteous men that God, looking back across the history of mankind, could bring about or, or mention in that moment. And he says, Even if Daniel were here to pray for these people, I would not spare this city. And Daniel, in the presence, of a vision of Christ falls on his face as a dead man. And we could look at all these instances and think, well, those are all pre-Christ. But we go to Revelation chapter 1, and John, who, by all accounts, is one of Jesus' very best friends in the flesh while he was here, who wrote books of the Bible. We talk about a righteous man who knew Christ, and he sees Christ in all of his resurrected glory and he falls on his face as though dead. This God is holy. He is not like us. He is over and above us where if he was to show up here right now, even with all of the forgiveness and the love that you've experienced in Christ, you would fall on your face as though dead. And it was not only God's presence and his voice that exposed the cre- people's creatureless, creatureliness, It was his words. It was his giving of the law where he showed them his righteous standard and they could see how far they fell short. We can see this again in the following verses. So look now at verse 22 of the same chapter as God begins to give them specific laws here about altars. The Lord says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where, you call, where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. You shall not go up by steps. To my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So, what's the first thing that God says after they have heard his voice? And this is the first message that he gives to Moses as he comes to them on their behalf. And he reiterates, You shall have no other gods beside me. Don't make other idols in your life to go along beside him. He says, Don't make them to be with me. But then he mentions for the first time since Passover, you're still going to need offerings. God gave us a law so that the law would condemn us in our sin and we would see the contrast between his righteousness and our sinfulness. But he did not give a law that could actually save them and make them righteous by the keeping of it. And so he mentions these offerings that when they come bring these offerings, which they would need because they need atonement for their sin to come before a God who is holy, he gives them specific rules about what that should look like. And here he says, if you were to so much as use one of your tools on these stones, you would allow the altar to see your filthiness, your shame, your nakedness, then you would defile the altar. Because there is none righteous, not even one there is no one who seeks for God. Every single person has been defiled by their sin. It's almost as if you could imagine that your hands secreted black oil. You could change your clothes. You could take a shower. You could do all of these things to try to purify yourself or change the situation, but you cannot change who you are. And you would just continue to defile and spread, no matter how much you tried to clean it up. It would just spread the filth more because the problem is not just what you did, it's who you are. Because you have sinned and fallen short of the God who is holy. This is what the law reveals to us. This is what God appearing to them in his holiness revealed to them. Who can stand before this God? The weight of God's glory exposes us in our unholiness. He exposes every lie that you're tempted to believe about yourself. And you stand before Him naked to give an account before the righteous judge of all the earth. It's only when we become aware of His worth and in the light of His majesty that we truly see ourselves in our insignificance and unworthiness. Israel saw this in this moment. They fled in the opposite direction. This is the fear of God. So we see God's grace in revealing to them His holiness, but now we see God's grace in granting the fear of Him. In verse 20, we see that Moses says, God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you. And all Throughout God's word, God is extolled as worthy of the fear of all that he's made. Fearing God is fundamental to the Christian life. We, We read things in God's word like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Or the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. As if fearing God is the description of the people of God. His word says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. It also says that those who practice it have a good understanding. So we need to consider this morning, what does it mean to fear God? Our text reminds us in verse 20 that as the covenant people of God, there is a right and a wrong way to fear Him. Look at verse 20 of our text. Moses says to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So he says, don't fear in one way. God has come so that you might fear him in a right way. Martin Luther made a distinction between servile fear and filial fear to help Christians understand what the Bible means by fearing God and what it does not mean. We've talked about this before. In Christ, we ought not to think about fearing God with a servile fear. This kind of servile fear is a fear of a, a slave or a master fearing his judgment. It's a kind of fear that runs from God in fear of punishment or judgment. That is not a godly, filial fear that belongs to those who are in Christ. But it's the very fear that we are most tempted to. You're found in sin or you're found in condemnation. Our temptation is to run from God, to avoid prayer, to avoid the gathering, to run away. In Christ, we ought to have a filial fear. This is a fear that a child has for his kind and authoritative father. It's a fear that runs to God in hatred Of sin and a fear of offending and dishonoring God. So, a right fear of God includes a consciousness of living our lives before Him in His majesty and presence. We live before God like He is who He really is in all of our life. We're mindful of His presence and His majesty and His worth and what He's done, and we fear Him like a child fearing His father. Hating the thought of displeasing him, loving to honor him and to obey him. now, servile fear, a fear that runs from God in his judgment, is all a man or a woman can know before in that fear they flee to Christ for refuge. And I would just add here, as we try to think about these two ways of fearing God, that there is often in the scriptures to God's people, warnings against breaking covenant or against apostasy, leaving the faith. John writes in his letter about people going out from the church, and because of their willful, unrepentant sin, they show by their deliberate rebellion and their lack of returning to Christ, returning to the people of God, they show that they were never of the people of God. The writer of Hebrews speaks of those who treat Christ's sacrifice with contempt by choosing a life of deliberate sin. And he says, in that case, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And God gives these warnings, these, these letters come to the church, he gives the warnings in order to save the people of God. We've, we've talked about this in recent weeks. When the people of God hear the warnings of God against sin, we repent and we flee and we turn to him. It's how he keeps us. It's it's like fencing against a, a freeway where there's cars that are speeding past. And he says, don't go that way. And the fence keeps us from what will kill us. And so I've been thinking about this. I was trying to think of a, an example that might be helpful. And I think this is it. I, I would compare living in the fear of God like living in the eye of a hurricane with paradise in the eye where you have by Christ been brought into the blazing center of the presence of God. And in him there is fullness of joy that lasts forever. And as you turn from him towards sin, there is a fearful expectation of judgment. there There is not only just a filial fear of wanting to please your father, but if you press on and run from him and you continue on with a life of deliberate sin, then there is this terrifying expectation of entering into the storm itself. So it's bringing them right up to the wall of the storm That is happening in this passage for Israel. God has come to them to bless them. He has come to them as his covenant people to show them his holiness so that they might flee to the center and fear him and keep his commandments. And if we stay in the center, it will be by the keeping power of God, not by our own merit not by our own, the strength of our fear of God. And so this is why Moses is coming to them and saying, do not be afraid. God has not appeared to you in judgment. He he has not shown up to you in this blazing tempest and in this storm in order to destroy you. He has come to bless you. That's why the very first words that they heard out of the terrifying voice of God was I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. He says in verse 24, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So, so God's heart in terrifying his people was to bless them so that they might fear him and walk in his ways and honor him as holy and see the nature of his holiness and how dangerous his holiness is to sin. And in doing so, they might learn to love him and flee from sin, to honor him and to obey him. So he reveals himself in his majestic holiness, not to repel his people in fear, but in order to make them cling to him in obedience. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see them recounting, before they enter into the land, they're recounting the same moment If you want to turn to it, it's verse 23 through 29. God is recounting to them this very moment, and it kind of serves as commentary on our passage from Moses as he looks back on this. And we see that God commends the people for their response to him, for their fear of him. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 23. As soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness... While the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me this is Moses talking all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, "Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. So hear this. God is saying, they are right in the way that they feared me. Now, no amount of fear of God was going to enable their perfect obedience. That is not why God gave the law. So we see him talking about the offerings that they would need all the time until the one came who would be the ultimate offering for his people. But God says that they were right, not just in their fear of God, but in their desire for a mediator. So here we come to see God's grace in giving us a mediator. We've seen God's grace in His revealing His holiness and in granting them the fear of God. They could have been blind to His holiness and not responded with the fear of God. That is the plight of the whole world. His indictment against the whole world is that there's no fear of God before their eyes. So it is a gift of God's grace to give you an appropriate fear of God. But a right fear of God leads you to His provision for you in the midst of your sinfulness and that's where we see God's grace in giving us a mediator it's here we see that one of God's chief purposes for the law is evident in the giving of the law and that is that the law was given to lead us to Christ Paul writes about the law as a ministry of condemnation sounds like strange words to go together doesn't it the law ministers to you in condemning you in your sin so that you would know your need for a righteousness from outside of yourself, so that you would know your need for a salvation that could only come from outside of you in your guilt and in your sin. So God again affirms the words of this people. This this passage is mentioned a lot in other texts where we see him reference our text today again in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He says to Moses, oh, sorry, Moses is again speaking to the people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So we know that ultimately, Moses is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the prophet like Moses, raised up from among Israel. And to him would be the obedience of the peoples. But the specific way in which this prophet was like Moses, that God is speaking of in Deuteronomy 18, is in Moses' role as a mediator. That the people are crying out saying, you speak to God for us. You go before God for us in his presence. We cannot take his presence or his voice anymore. In our creatureliness, they, f- they feel and sense their unworthiness, and they know we need a mediator. And so God says, yes, that is right. They do need a mediator, and I'm going to send you one. Uh, ultimately, a-, a better one, an ultimate one that would not only be for them but for us. And in the same way that this passage pointed ahead to our need for a mediator, this reminder of these sacrifices points ahead to our need for atonement. You're not going to be able to keep the law, no matter how scared you are, no matter what kind of reminder you have of God's holiness. You're going to sin. And so you're going to need atonement. And so God set up a sacrificial system and Again and again, they had to sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats had to be sprinkled on the altar to make atonement for the sins of the people. But they had to be offered again and again, year after year, because the sacrifices didn't keep. They, it, it wasn't real atonement for their sin. It was a token that pointed ahead to the coming of Christ and the offering that he would make. But every year as they were offered, it was a reminder again and again You still need atonement. Atonement still needs to be made. These sacrifices were not sufficient for the removal of your sin and your guilt. And so we have this twin need that we can see just from our passage. You need atonement for your sin in order to be forgiven by this God who is holy. And you need a mediator who will go between you and this holy God who will minister on your behalf. Moses interceded for the people, and Israel had priests to mediate for them on the basis of sacrifices offered yearly. But Christ became and is forever the one mediator between God and men, as he mediates for us on the basis of his once and for all sacrifice. This is what the book of Hebrews details and is all about how Christ came as a better High priest and is himself the sacrifice, the the God who set ablaze atop Sinai himself came, and he became himself the sacrifice in the place of sinners who could never approach God on their own merit. So he becomes both the sacrifice and the mediator. This is what's described in Hebrews chapter nine, verse eleven to fifteen. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all to the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So hear this. The Lord Jesus Christ offered himself without blemish to God as a one-time sacrifice. The fact that he did not have to go to the cross again and again is proof that the Father accepted his payment of his righteous life in your place so that you, whose only response should be to run from the blazing fire of God before it caught up to you. You who deserve hell because of your sinfulness against the Holy God could be purified and have an eternal redemption, have bold and confident access. Moses didn't have a bold and confident access. Moses came because he was invited into the thick darkness, and he said, I tremble with fear. But We now, because of the sinlessness of Christ, because he has taken his own blood and sprinkled the true heavenly realities of which the tabernacle and the temple were just copies of, he has gone into the presence of God, and he now mediates and intercedes for us on the basis of his sacrifice in your place. And the Father accepts it and now gives you bold and confident access to him because of it. need Jesus by his cross did not bring the holy God down to bring you in he has by faith in his atoning work purified he's forgiven you of your sins and cleansed your conscience he's changed you fundamentally who you are so that now you don't secrete oil from everything you try to do That he's actually forgiven you of your sin and removed from you the source that led to all of your guilt. And he now invites you, come in him to the Father, up the mountain, to a a greater and more glorious reality than Israel even began to see at Sinai. So how now shall we consider the fear of God and this account in Exodus in light of the atonement that Christ has made, in light of him mediating for us by his blood, does any of this still matter? Or are we just, now we have access to him, and now we don't have to worry about fearing God the same way. N- now we don't have to worry about this passage in Exodus. That was just an old covenant thing at the giving of the law, and now we live under grace, so we, don't, we can just skip over those parts. Well, the writer of Hebrews does not. And so this is where we come to our kind of final section together. We've seen God's grace to us and the things that he shows us, this holiness and the fear of God and Christ our mediator. And our response must be, let us offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. You can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. This is where we are ending today. Hebrews chapter 12, and again, just like our text, beginning in verse 18. The writer of Hebrews is pointing back to this exact account in Exodus chapter 20, in the giving of the law. And he tells his recipients, you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the Judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the Mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We talked about how the law was this ministry of condemnation, and Paul writes saying. If the ministry of condemnation came with glory, then how much greater glory this ministry of righteousness where God manifests to you a righteousness apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. That these realities that we have come to are more glorious. They're more weighty. They're more awful and glorious. And he says, you have come to these this is where we must take this up by faith. Just as surely as Israel came to Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, you have come to Mount Zion in Christ. You have. Just like he, Paul writes in saying, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now. So we must receive this by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so we must be mindful of having come to this God, of of having come to a better covenant and a better mountain and a better mediator as you live your life and you realize all of life is an altar for worship. We talk about let us offer acceptable worship in light of these amazing heavenly realities that are now yours in Christ. We're not just talking about how you show up on a Sunday morning. But as you go to work, let us offer to him acceptable worship. As you speak to each other in your home, as you walk with him in secret, the things that you do in private, let us live our lives in the fear of God as those who have come to these heavenly realities and who live there. This is our, the place where we live. You are Walking around in the presence of God before you wouldn't have been able to stand the presence of God from a distance. Now He's invited you in to live there. And so we come back to that, that kind of tornado or that hurricane reality. Live in the center and delight in His goodness and love Him and hate sin and everything that would bring you to the edges because as we read in our reading of the law our God is a jealous God he is jealous over you with a holy jealousy he created you to know and to worship him he brought you into his covenant so that James says do you not know that this God yearns with jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you he wants your obedience. He wants your worship. And he he speaks to us like in 1 John. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. So we have this kind of twofold command, this twin command that we are called not to sin and to flee sin in the fear of God, to, to fear anything, doing anything that would displease him. And we know that atonement has been made and that Christ is our mediator and he is saving us to the uttermost. And if we at the last stay in that center with Christ as our refuge, it will be because he has kept us. And so this is what the fear of God looks like in your daily life. Living life before the face of a God who is holy. A God who looks at you as his child and says, be holy for I am holy. Be Christ-like because I am Christ-like. If you call on him as father during the time of your sojourning who judges impartially each person according to their works. Then conduct yourself in the fear of God. And be mindful of what it cost him to redeem you. And live accordingly. You are not ransomed by silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. And so what kind of people are we to be in godliness. To honor the weight and the glory of all that Christ has done to bring us into his holiness. Do you see the command to be holy is a privilege. He is inviting you to be something that you never could have been apart from Christ. He's saying, I'm inviting you to be like me, to come out from them and be separate. And as you do, I will be a God to you. I will be your father. And so, we must not treat his sacrifice or his holiness lightly or with flippancy. He has mercifully supplied our need in Christ, and he has moved so that the fear of him might be in us always and that may wa- we might walk in his ways. And so that's why he ends this chapter. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from on earth, Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So hear the writer of Hebrews. That's filial fear with this servile fear spinning around, saying, listen to him. He warns you because he loves you. And if they did not escape when he warned them from earth, and they hadn't even disobeyed the law yet since he had given it to them, How much worse judgment do you think you will receive if you willfully disobey the law, if you willingly disobey the gospel, having known what Christ has done for you, and you walk away from him? Hear his warning. He is going to judge the living and the dead. And in that moment, the only salvation is to be found in Christ, under his blood, Because by faith you took refuge in him. So let us not neglect such a great salvation, but pay close attention to the gospel that we've heard and not drift from it. For our God yearns with jealousy over the spirit he has made to dwell within us. He warns us to bless us, and so that reverence and awe would mark our worship and our lives. We don't fear him to receive the kingdom. We fear him because we've already received it. And we know with him there is forgiveness that he may be feared. We, we fear him more, not less, now. Because we see not only is he ablaze in his holiness, but that holiness included his love by which he sent Christ to redeem us and bring us to himself. So let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all let's pray father in heaven hallowed be your name make your name holy here in our sight may we see you as you are We praise you for the redemption that we have in Christ, our mediator. Thank you for the confidence that we have to come before you in him. Help us, Lord, to live our lives before you with reverence and awe. As you are holy, Lord, may we too be holy in all our conduct, knowing that we were redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. Give us grace to cleanse ourselves of every defilement of flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.